this is episode 109 of G.I. Joburg. I'm your host, Steve. And as always, or not as always, but tonight, I'm joined by... Um, Paul. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> and he's Crickets. <laughs> and Robert. Back at it again, boys. Back at that it again. That was fresh. Boy. <laughs> you got Cujo on the West Coast. Uh, I'm very recently back on the Einstein sleeping schedule. Uh, eight on, four off. So I might be a little wobbly. Uh, cheers, guys. Oh. 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 And by the end of this podcast, we're going to melt your face. That's a guarantee. Ho ho ho! A lofty claim, Curtis. But in this episode, we are talking comic books. And a very specific series of comic books. G.I. Joburg doesn't pride itself on being up on the current releases. Hell, we're not even up on releases of the last decade. But one comic book series has been mentioned time and time again as being something altogether special. It started out in 2014, ran for about two years, and it has most G.I. Joe fans divided. Polarized. <laughs> That's it. You either love it or you loathe it. How can this be so controversial? How can this be so lost, Jedi? Well, we're about to get into that tonight. The comic book series under discussion is none other than Tom Sholey's and John Barber's Transformers vs. G.I. Joe. And I can't begin a discussion of this comic book series without opening up a an account <laughs> in our new shit section. Something we haven't done for a while because we're all saving our shekels for Jokon. This series was bought, paid for, and shipped to us from Amazon, courtesy of David Cabal, our good friend and long-time fan and listener. So Dave, thank you. Episode 109 is attributed to you and in your honor. <laughs> so thank you, David. G.I. Joburg salutes you. Um, yeah. yeah, let me let me step to that for one second. Uh, as far as Dave goes, I actually spent an hour chatting him up about this book uh, earlier this week. That was a pleasure. Uh, thank you for that, Dave. Um, so he, he's on my, he's on my shoulder for this chat. Like Polly. <laughs> uh, more or less. Uh, wow. Well, he is from San Diego. Not so? Oh, no, no. He's from your neck of the woods, Cujo. No, he's in San Diego. It's kind of a couple hours south of me. But uh, I'm sure we'll cross paths in due course. Well, shipwrecks from thereabouts as well. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm just making connections. <laughs> Guys, I mean, we have to do this in two parts because if you're out there and um, we're getting you hyped about this series and you haven't read it, it is so landscape altering and so full of sucker punches and surprises that we're going to have to do a spoiler-free review at, up front, just canvassing our general opinions on the series. Mm. So if your interest is piqued, you can seek it out for yourself. And for those of you who have read it, who want to listen further, 
to our in-depth nitpicks, the things we loved, the things we loathed, you can listen on to the rest of the episode. Or if you just treat us like some kind of meditation and just want to hear foreign voices in your heads, yeah, well, pay this warning, no mind. Just let us wash over you like the tides. <laughs> Creepy. So, should we start off with our, our initial impressions of this book? Like, Absolutely. So, what did you guys think? So, like, when you first saw... I mean, I know my first moment, the first time I was exposed to this book... But do you guys remember the first time you were exposed to this uh, comic book series? And and uh, what are your thoughts? Like, I'm, I'm keen to hear. I think probably the first time I was introduced to this, I'm almost certain I got the free comic book day comic, which is uh, issue zero of this, where it kind of, it's kind of just setting up, you know, essentially what this thing is and I suppose gain you know gauging interest in, in the in the universe and if people would be on board for this idea. And that zero issue was was pretty, pretty dope. Um I think it released yeah, twenty fourteen, I think, that free comic book day. And then the comic came out a couple of months after that, the first issue. And I, I was pretty blown away by that first issue. Shirley's his his art is is fantastic. He himself has said, and uh, he owns up to it. Um, his art is very much influenced by Jack Kirby, and he said, I think that he thinks Jack Kirby's style is is literally the best style, and he he loves that he apes it. And and I have to agree, his art style makes anything believable. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, True. I, I like anything could happen, and I was like, cool, I, I can accept this happening in this world. That looks like this and that made it a lot easier to be on board with a lot of the twists and turns and really hectic out there crazy stuff that happens as you go through this comic series so that, that was my first introduction to this this world for me this this book represents like it was the best of times it was the worst of times uh as far as like the idw goes because i agree with you uh robert that uh the art style is very engaging, but uh, when I first laid eyes on it, this is one of those things where it's like, I don't want to have the alternate cover. If I have the comic, it's got to be Sholey's art on the cover, because anything else that they threw at you with all those multiple covers just clashed. But his art style is engaging on the surface for me. I, I think as we get in deeper, uh, I'll probably kind of spin off of that, so... At first glance, uh, it, it, you got to pick it up. What do you think, Stephen? I absolutely ripped through this. In a matter of hours, I could not stop myself. It surprised me because G.I. Joe and Transformer crossovers, while both equally beloved toy lines for me, I'm not one of those guys who is entirely in the G.I. Joe camp. If you've seen my collection video, I'm a very proud owner of a nice mix of Masterpiece Transformers and vintage reproduction Transformers. Love me some bots. G.I. Joe has overtaken it in recent years. You know, I host this show called G.I. Joe Berg and I have a YouTube channel and so G.I. Joe is a firm focus. But there was a time when these two toy lines were neck and neck and yet I never mixed. I always thought of the few outings that G.I. Joe and Transformers had in comic books were just Hasbro cash grabs and the storylines were uninspired. They didn't treat either property 
with enough verve and risk and with enough intrigue, it was just like, let's throw all the usual ingredients in the pan and see how original a dish you can create. It just wound up tasting beige. <laughs> so what is so appealing and exciting about this particular smash up is that it is an absolute passion project. It seems it didn't feel forced and decided on by committee by Hasbro because it is so subversive because it is so different because it has such a distinct mission statement vision. It seems like an auteur work and definitely the brainchild of, of Mr. Shirley. No doubt about that. This is his baby. John Barber was brought on to steer the Transformers ship a bit, perhaps, and add his madcap mind and prose style and act as a soundboard for Shirley. But let's face up to the fact that there was a unitary vision and that was Tom Shirley's. The guy's a genius and <laughs> I'm giving the game away, but I couldn't be more positive about these books. It got me excited about comic books, G.I. Joe comic books, in ways that I haven't been since the Homer stuff. Nothing has been this ballsy, this risky, as this work. I'm a toy guy. And when you present the toys faithfully and en masse, but still seem to make an enormous roster of characters all get a moment and intrigue and well thought out actions and characterizations which is faithful to the way they were presented on the file cards the text specs early comic books and cartoons and you add to that mythology in a creative and compelling way both mythologically in history and also projecting into the future of this world there is so much in this book and it is so inspiring and inspired it's the finest stuff i've ever read since homer it's very engaging. What? <laughs> I've never wanted to mix my Transformers and my G.I. Joes. Now I do. Now I want to display vintage O-Ringers and G1 Transformers on the same shelf. They have to. They have to go there. I have to unite my forces. Uh, okay. I'm going to say that... Uh, just to preface it, I've worked in the comics uh, shop industry, you know, like in comics, comic book retail, as does Rob. So mm -hmm. something that as somebody in that retail sort of sector it gets used to is seeing millions of variant covers for for comic books. OK, so, I mean, I th in fact, I think it's worse now. I, th I think it's the biggest it's ever been now than it's ever been before. OK, that's including the the early 90s with all the foil covers and that madness so when when i saw the tom sholey cover uh, it was posted by somebody i think it was jim godfrey that posted it on our gi joeberg facebook channel which uh, our listeners you are welcome to join uh just uh, asked to be asked to join and then answer a few simple gi joe related questions and boom you're part of our secret gi joeberg facebook group um, but anyway, uh, Jim Godfrey posted uh, a picture. In fact, I'm, I'm very sh uh, sure it was Jim Godfrey. And I remember seeing that and going, okay, well, Tom Shirley's art. I thought my initial reaction was like, whoa, 
um i'll be honest it was whoa but then i was like okay no actually this is really cool it's really ballsy and uh i really enjoy it you know there were tons of people commenting on the proportions and this and that and i was like it doesn't matter the the sheer visual impact of the cover at least for me hit me uh in the feels um and those feels were like sort of based with you know based on nostalgia i mean it hit me in the in the nostalgia the way it's colored uh the way it's presented even the the compositional style was was very reminiscent of i wouldn't say old comic books so much as old toy catalogs and toy promotional material it came across that way to me more than it did as a comic book and uh, i remember feeling like well this is intriguing I wonder if the art in the inside is like this because Cujo um, pointed it out earlier where he feels that uh, Tom Scholey's covers for the series are the best because it uh, it segues very very well into the interior pages, which I have to agree with. Uh, but in this case, I'm talking about the inverse where usually you'll find a great cover often done by one of your favorite artists. In my case, guys like J. Scott Campbell or Adam Hughes. And inside, uh, the pages are penciled and inked by, I don't want to say bad artists because that's not fair, but, but like juniors, you know, guys who have sort of just gotten into the scene. And, and I often found a lot of juniors that uh, worked on G.I. Joe's books, especially in some of the IDW runs and the Devil's Due run. And Devil, Devil's Due is, is quite a, uh, a purveyor of this. Like they, they seem to like really push getting like, entry-level artists into their books which in and itself is a good thing anyway so i just thought oh, okay it's just another cool variant cover and that's where it was and uh jim godfrey couldn't stop praising this book and dave cabal um also just added his two cents and and i think it's that image guys that that led to dave cabal going nope gi Joburg needs to read this and i think <laughs> messages were sent back and forth to us so my initial impression of this book was that uh, it's going to be very much like Devil's Dues, Transformers vs. G.I. Joe, which which I'll deliver a small criticism on, or a small critique on, should I say. I thought it was noble that they tried to find a a marriage between the two brands in the same way that you know I did when I was a kid with David's Transformers and my Transformers. And I thought it was quite nuanced in that they tried to somehow make gi joe's mythology and transformers mythology mixed together and and kind of try to tell the story that is both gi joe and transformers parallel to each other uh the biggest issue i have with it today uh, and that i've always had with it is that you leave that book or at least i left that book feeling okay that was a nice what if and my sentiments about this transformers versus gi joe is very different so unless anybody has anything else to say, I think we need to move on to the next layer of this discussion. Yeah. I take yeah. it we're, we're in agreement there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Guys? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sweet. Okay. Listener, you have been warned. If you have not read this comic book series, Transformers vs. G.I. Joe, by Tom Shirley and John and John Barber, and our hype has convinced you that this is a worthy pursuit. <laughs> I suggest strongly, very strongly, that you do not listen any further. As I said before, 
this comic book series is so subversive and so very full of game-changing, reality-altering for both the Transformers and G.I. Joe and Cobra moments that for us to continue discussing it at the level of detail that we want to, uh, it's going to rob you of some very, very cool moments, very cool reveals, some absolute WTF moments. <laughs> and these moments might hurt your enjoyment or might enhance your enjoyment. But either way, if you haven't read it and you're now intending to, listen no further. That said, gentlemen, how best to approach this? Because this is a mammoth, three-volume-long, 13 issues, plus a zero issue that was issued as a build-up on Free Comic Book Day in 2014. Wow. We've spoken a bit about the art. Let's speak about plot points. I'm not going to try and do a summary of events, I guess. Let's open the discussion by what do you guys think of the mythological implications of the story that G.I. Joe, the Destro clan, the snake people of Koburula, and Koburula. The, <laughs> the Transformers were always destined to have this conflict. They shared this deep connection. Yeah. It's fascinating that G.I. Joe has kind of a, a prehistory in Norse mythology, <laughs> it's spellbinding to me that the Hauser lineage can be traced through to the sea raiders of giant island Jotunheim, Benberger, Jotunheim. Yeah. Okay, so this is, it's kind of funny how things like this work sometimes. Uh, I just recently watched a horror movie. Uh, called The Ritual, which is on Netflix. Uh, I'm plugging it because I think it's a great movie and it's based on a fantastic book by a guy. Uh, I think his name is John Neville. Um, Adam, Adam Neville, sorry. Anyway, um, without giving too much of that game away, it does have a bit of Norse mythology in it because the protagonist uh, and his uh, crew, uh, they go for a hike through the Swedish forest and hills and things like that. Anyway, what was really cool about that is, uh, and coming back to what Steven said with the with the sort of Norse mythology, is that it's weird. It's like PTSD, and I don't know if you guys have had this with this book because I certainly have. And it was like I saw this and I was like, "Wow, this movie is great!" And then all of a sudden, this flood of stuff from that GI Joe book hit me out of nowhere, and I was not expecting for my for my brain to be like filled with all of these thoughts of of G.I. Joe, I was not expecting this horror movie to conjure up memories of reading this graphic novel, which I don't know how you guys feel about this, but the pacing is insane. Okay. And, and, and I think the best way I can, I can really summarize this series and it's because I cannot sit on it any longer. I think that this is either, and, and this is often the case with things like this, this series of books is either the most ridiculous thing you will ever pick up and is possibly <laughs> the most ridiculous thing that could have ever been done with G.I. Joes and Transformers for them to even have inserted 
Norse mythology into it the way they did and sort of meta concepts in it the way they did it's absolutely fucking ridiculous but on the flip side it could actually be a sheer work of genius and and that is how i see it i see it as this work of genius i i i cannot understand i cannot properly you know describe to you why but there is a well, it comes back to what rob was saying about how when the art is so incredibly stylized and dressed up in this kind of wackadoo, crazy, almost eight-year-old doodlings, well, hell of a talented mm. eight-year-old, you'll believe anything. Yeah. You'll believe that the G.I. Joes exactly can it. travel to Cybertron on a giant defiant filled with green bombs. They can breathe Cybertronian air just fine. In space. It smells like diesel fumes of Detroit to Stalker. It's like reality takes well, a walk off the map and it's okay. Let me yeah. break up the love fest, unless you're still going. I'm still going for two things. It's just that I've, I, and I've said this before in previous episodes, or I've said something to this tune. I always feel like, I think it was when we, they were talking about the Hasbro verse, you know, the sort of uh, mixing ROM, Space Knight, Micronauts, and all that stuff together. It's when I sort of first mentioned this. If you're going to do something like take Transformers and G.I. Joe and smash them together and make them plausibly exist in the same universe, I've all, I feel that you have to sort of take it from one of two angles. The one angle is you go the super serious Michael ba super serious, okay, so don't hold me to this, but the super serious Michael Bay route, and it ends up being uh, a bullet-filled ride through Roboland, you know, through Robopark, okay? And and that would be okay. Or you take it to, like, the next level and you make it as ridiculous as fuck and you have fun with it and, and you literally disengage your adult brain and you just reconnect with your seven-year-old self who's just gotten a crap ton of G.I. Joes and Transformers for Christmas or his birthday or something and he's got all of his friends, and you have all read some of the comics, so you have some good understanding of what's happened in G.I. Joe's comic books and what's happened in Transformers comic books. But where it doesn't suit you, you just bend your will to it, and that is the best thing about this book for me. It is a book that embodies playing with the toys. It embodied the excitement of both brands for me, and it made comic books fun for me again. I haven't had a, this much fun reading a comic book in a very, very long time. It made me go, wow, I would love to read something else that's like this or, or give me more of this because it's just so there, so out there. But anyway, uh, that's, that's, that's me. I would love to hear you guys. I, I think I've, I've hugged too much of this microphone. No, dude, you're, you're bringing some good vibes to the scene. Look, I, I, it, I don't drop the word genius that often, um, and I'm not going to drop it today. But I, I do get it. Like, what's the over-under on us saying Jack Kirby in this, this episode? But I think that, like, okay, if you were around for Jack Kirby, if you were around for that, which, I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of the people that are uh, listening in right now uh, were. Uh, what about the Tomorrow Man? Oh, dude, okay, I can't bring him up yet. But I will say that Merck, when, when we brought this book up on Twitter, he's like, you know, fuck robots. And, and I get it. I'm not into Transformers either. They didn't hit for me. I don't know why. 
But at that time, I just wasn't interested in robots. So, I mean, the book for me is kind of an uneven experience because I was drawn into half of it. Sholi has kind of a, it's almost like he's storyboarding a movie. He doesn't (laughs) tell the whole story, but you'll leave the room. And then when you come back to that room, events have transpired. And you're like, oh, okay. So it adds an element of like constant fracturing of the story, which, you know, for a bit, I like it. But for 13 issues, I was like, wait, what? So, I mean, (laughs) when you have to keep doing that, then you're like, oh, this guy doesn't necessarily tell a story about toys. He's telling a different story. I think we'll get there in a little bit. But I do agree that you look at this art and it's hard to go, no, I'm not interested because he's put in the time. Like, even if he wasn't a Joe fan, you see, like, these one-liner file cards. I love those. They will tickle you, dude. And what about Destro's rundown? Holy cow. Like, that'll leave you giddy. Oh, man. Destro's meeting with Megatron? That's it. It's a beautiful scene. You see Megatron reflected in Destro's mask, and the caption reads, Gun God, meet your avatar. Oh, man, it's so good. Oh, dude, there's one-liners for days. What about enjoy the fireworks courtesy of a dude named Joe? I mean, when when I read that, I was like, yes. And and for an unintelligent contribution to the thing, uh uh-oh, here comes Barney, (laughs) which fucking (laughs) floored me. Is that in reference to to Trypticon Trypticon or to Grimlock? Brilliant. Yeah, when Trypticon's coming, he's like, "Uh uh-oh, here comes Barney. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I don't know how Robert breaks on this as far as the Transformers side. Were you drawn into the psychology of the book more than the property? I think, yeah, probably. I mean, I've always liked Transformers, but i, I got to be honest, I never really read any Transformers comics. I think Stephen had maybe one or two of the British <laughs> ones, which are pretty, really dark and, like, scary and horrific. Oh, the Simon Furman ones. Yeah, that dude's bad. Yeah, it's, in, yeah. it's insane. Um. Other than that, my exposure to Transformers was essentially just the toys. Um, later on, we watched the cartoons. But yeah, definitely what got me in there was was yeah, it was GI Joe and just the way that he, I suppose he approaches the characters very differently, but still, they're not overly developed, which I find a lot of some writers do do with GI Joe. They kind of go too deeply into the characters. It's like you can just paint them with broad brushes, you know, Brush, and then yeah. you get you get who they are. But like he definitely built a lot of stuff. Like this is definitely his, this is his version of GI Joe, and I think like Paul was saying, it's definitely Shirley playing with his toys. I mean, this feels like something he came up with when he was a kid. Like he just anything you could think of just went in there, and he he got his chance to tell his childhood, uh, you know, GI Joe Transformers crossover story. And yet, at the essence of each character, I'd say the point of departure is one of like canonic truth what i mean by that is absolutely duke can be played as tough as nail first shirt but when we're honest with ourselves he's not an 013 joe so there must have been a point where he had his first mission with the joes yeah he's a rookie you know it is corny as hell for the new guy to just be the boss sometimes you have to Show everyone why you are the top kick. Yeah. You're talking about Hauser, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's just one example. Another example is like Bazooka. He's not an imbecile. He's an excellent soldier. Uh, but he is, he's like a dog. Like, if it's on the floor, he'll eat it. <laughs> he's got some, some great quirks. The fucking potter potty, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had to put in some toilet humor at some point. But my point is, I think there's an essence of truth in every single character's point of departure. Like, they got down to the brass tacks of what makes Scarlet tick. What makes Lady J different? What is the relationship between, and this is my absolute favorite, Duke and Falcon? I was going to say. Had the balls to flesh that out before this book. Yeah. It's something that you get from G.I. Joe the movie, which, you know, like, G.I. Joe fans love to hate on it because yeah. of Cobra Law. Yeah. But then we all love the amazing opening sequence. So... Once again, fans are divided, but this book had the balls to find a place for Cobra Law and on a subtle front, add the relationship of Duke and Falcon into the mix and embellish upon that relationship and tell that story, add meat to the bones, which you get from G.I. Joe the movie. So it might have been a case of Sholi taking out all of his toys and spinning a fantastical yarn. But as I say, and the point I want to get across is that all of his points of departure had canonical roots in G.I. Joe, and he did something with the stuff. And I, I got something for Rob I want to check, um, because this is... A... Well, what was Rob going to continue with before I sidetracked him? No, 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 that, 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 I, was, I, was, I was essentially going to keep going around in circles. <laughs> uh, as our sort of resident uh, Scoop fanboy and... Uh, Rob, I think you do have the honor of probably being Scoop's ultimate fanboy. I don't think there's anybody who enjoys the character as much or more than you do. Um, <laughs> I couldn't help but seeing Scoop in the book and always thinking of of Rob when I read the book, like because they they put Ro uh, they put Rob <laughs> they put Scoop in in the background. You know, he's always like he's like filming everything. He he's taking in information and. And how did you feel about seeing one of your favorite characters utilized the way he was in, in this uh, series, Rob? I think it was fantastic. Like, he doesn't have to be saying stuff. He's literally doing what he what his what his mission statement is. And also, I yeah. think he was introduced, or at least they, you know, they finally gave him his tag in issue 10. Um, mm. Scoop, documenting the last days. Um, and I think <laughs> it was appropriate. Awesome. You know? You know? And the cool thing is that you see him. I mean, also like uh, Shirley's art, like you you see him there and you know it's him, just just by the kind of the color palette and the very basic like helmet that he wears. Yeah. And he's always um, got a camera. He's always got yeah, that damn camera. Yeah, always running around with a camera. Yeah. And I thought it was very well, very cool. Well, Shockwave is in a big long shot, but doesn't get a file card. Yeah. And he doesn't have a line either. And and I suppose it's really difficult to sort of nail something like this down in a book as bombastic as this is. So I wouldn't blame you guys if you have more than one of these moments. But were there any moments in this book that, that shocked you? And, and, and when I say shocked you, not like, oh, a story reveal, and perhaps maybe it could be, but something that shocked you that was just, it was just nasty. Like, 
you know, because this book is full of it. This, this, the way this art style is, is that it almost makes the violence in it kind of gross. I, I think that's the best way I can explain it. It's just, it's kind of, it's, it's nasty. You know, it's, it's, it's hectic. And, oh, yeah, the effect of the blood splatter. Yeah. Like, whenever there's carnage on the page, instead of seeing a torso severed, like, Shirley will just, like, overlay this red effect blot splatter yeah for lack of a better term help me out artist well, boys there's, yeah there's like <laughs> a, a splatter or like a kia over the file card or or something like that or crushed or or something and and i know and like i was gonna say i know what my one of my favorite uh gross art moments were in this book and before i get to mine i'd love to hear what you guys or if you guys had any moments where something happened in the book and and maybe it was a character you liked or something and it just kind of like hit you in the head a little bit like you know like you were like oh wow you got one curtis i think for me a slap in the face it seemed like it was every couple pages i did love how sholy kind of took your air away from you every once in a while there's a there's a frame where you got cobra commander about ready to rip off uh, snake eyes's mask and he's like behold my children and then it cuts away for like this other epic fight for like four pages. And you're like, what the hell? And then it comes back and Snake Eyes is like taking on this whole room. And they're like, was he faking it? What was going on? You know, that that got me. Um, thematically, yeah, the face slaps are everywhere. So I'm not going to get there yet. Rob? Um, probably, yeah, also from issue 10. Um, so Roblox was captured at some point. Um, mm. And he's now serving as the, the chef because he was like, you ain't eating none of your gross food. I'll make you the best food you ever had. Um, so they're having a big banquet. And then, just completely out of nowhere, Torch just starts projectile vomiting blood. Yeah. Oh, that was it's mixed, kind of like a black and red kind of smell. Yes, but it's like a proper like spray. Oh. It's just completely pouring out of his mouth. And they're like, the food's been poisoned. And I was like, wow, I did. I, I really didn't see that coming. <laughs> it was, you, it was just boom. Oh, sorry, Rob. No, oh. it's good. <laughs> well, the Dreadnoughts seem to buy it in very creative and horrific ways. For instance, well, that was also my topic. Just the gore of basically puking up your organs. Um, is what is being expressed in Ripper's death. Is it Ripper or is it Torch? It's Torch. I think it's Torch. Torch, yeah. yeah. But in just as macabre a fashion, but in obscured fashion, the Sucker Punch reveal, and it's on a page turn, so brilliant, where Buzz is like, welcome back to, to Cobra, Dr. Venom, and he hands Dr. Venom a pistol, which Dr. Venom uses to blast, explode <laughs> Buzz's head off. But they fudge it out. <laughs> so yeah. it's brilliant. Venom wants to curry favor with G.I. Joe and prove to them that he's actually on their side, that he's Dr. Phenom, as in phenomenal, not Dr. Venom. Anyway, so he blows Buzz's uh, head clean <laughs> off. Of a conversation I had with somebody the other day with these. Yeah. I devoured absolutely everything uh, to these books, so I did have time to read the author commentary 
very, very well written, very, very amusing. Mm. And in the author commentary, they very aptly say that they were going for a very Tarantino-esque vibe for that issue. And it is reminiscent of that scene in Pulp Fiction where Travolta's leaning over <laughs> the car seat, gun in hand, talking to Marvin, and you don't expect it, the horror that's about to ensue. But once you have seen Pulp Fiction once, you know it's coming and you <laughs> are waiting for that moment where that gun goes off and brains splatter everywhere. Yeah. So it kind of colors all your further readings of this book because you know this horrific act of violence is coming. Mine uh, is, uh, I think it's uh, a page away from Rob's uh, with Torch, uh, you know, spewing his guts out. Oh, uh, wow, Bill. I mean, Zartan. No, no, there's a moment where, um, yes, that was hectic too, but uh, actually, no, for me, it's that it's that scene where Megatron gets his meal, and he lifts up that, like, that's, I, I don't ever know what those serving plates are called, but it's one of those serving plates that has got the domed dish over it, and you see a little, like, skid mark in the middle of this, in, like, a fetal position, and he's got some garnish around him, and Megatron just eats Skidmark. And it's uh, such a terrible self-fulfilling prophecy as far as the fucking code name goes. And I was just like, this poor character is so destined for ridicule. He just has that. And he gets eaten, and I feel so bad for him. Because he doesn't do anything in the book but get eaten. But you don't see the gore. You see the plate... And you see the inside of Megatron's mouth. And but, the terror of, of... Yeah. But you don't see him, like, being chomped. No. But yeah. I think it's in the same panel that torches projectile vomiting. His insides. In the background of that panel, Megatron is depicted with this red smear down his chin. So not only is he consuming the... Skidmark, but he did it in such a fashion that the blood is just pouring just, down his chin, dribbling down his face. Yeah, he was like a five-year-old eating ice cream mixed with the T-Rex from Jurassic Park, man. Fuck, and he just did it. <laughs> and so, yeah, this book is hardcore. It's an it's another thing, and and it was something that I had to bring up because it's something that is quite distinctly part of this book's flavor um not necessarily the gore but almost the horror of it you know the uh. <laughs> yeah robbie uh oh hey, what was the other moment you asked um that was when zartan is kind of discovered and he is flying the dragonfly and he basically chops up like four or five different gi joes and it's a really cool panel too Somewhat unsubtle of Zartan, I must say. Like, I mean, what was his end game at that point? He'd just been discovered, and I think he realized it. Okay. So he was like, i got to get out of there as quickly as I can. And the fastest way, you know, of doing that is just flying out of there by ripping up all those G.I. Joes. That was pretty cool, actually. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yeah, and also, is a, yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, Cobra that's fine. legitimately evil. Carry on. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, they very much are. Very much so are. Are so. <laughs> Although, 
Baroness does have delusions of of being humanity's savior. Like yeah. the governments of the world are are unable to strike a deal with these Cybertronians. So I'm gonna go to the United Nations and ultimatumize. I'm gonna say, listen, we are in contact with Cybertronians. We are going to negotiate the terms of the human race's ongoing survival, but it's going to be under the banner of Cobra and me, the Serpentress. You know, she honestly believes she is working in humanity's best interests. Mm. That's a kind of maternal instinct move from Baroness or Serpentress that we've never really seen before. Mm. And maybe that's, maybe she would be a benevolent leader of Cobra. She's just never had the opportunity. Well, but since you brought up the violence aspect, this is a quote from Tom Shirley, and I was wondering where I could work it in, but it's a pretty important one and kind of gives reason why the art style is so flamboyant and so colorful and so Kirby. It's because he believes, and I quote, I want to put the comic back into comic books, the cartoon back into cartoon, and still have a story that's hard as hell. Thank you. Bam. Bam. That's There you go. Mm. So don't let the art style put you off, Bart. <laughs> there are moments that are going to kick your ass and make you lose your mind. There are moments that have a lot of heart. Mm. Oh my goodness. I felt like a child when Mutt realizes that he is a prisoner of something awful and that he's been brainwashed, much like sort of the Springfield episode mm. of... I think it's a little town called Springfield. Anyways, the story's about Scarlet, but Mutt has a great moment where he realizes and it's all at the hands or paws of his pal Junkyard yeah. who follows him home. And he's like swatting him away with a copy of the issue that you happen to be reading. <laughs> Very meta. Meta. Little bizarre break <laughs> of the fourth wall. But Junk persists and violently leaps up teeth bared and in the final panel on that page you get a flashback or strong compelling emotional memory of mutt in his classic gi joe uniform holding a puppy junkyard <laughs> and it's like that memory shocks mutt back into remembering i'm a joe i've been brainwashed let's get the fuck out of here yeah scarlet was right and it's beautiful that moment of Oh, you little puppy dog. It's beautifully drawn. Mutt's expression is poignant, to say the least. I mean, I'm just, I'm teetering on that brink where I'm almost wanting to step beyond the fiction. But I, I think that uh, what, you, what you guys are bringing forward as a strength, I see as a weakness on the publishing house side. And, and I'm not, I'm not going to go there. But... One of the things that Cabal mentioned about this series, a huge fan, Tom, I might add, you should you should probably uh, send that guy a signed copy or something because he's sold more of your books than uh, a lot of people. But uh, like he didn't know when the series was going to end and it ran for two years, apparently. But it kind of leaves this open end where which a lot of the IDW Joe books have done. Uh, Citizen's book uh, went extinct, as you know, that's a that's a pun. Um, Big loss. Yeah. But, uh, no, I, I think that, uh, a lot of the fans don't get what they're doing. Like nobody could buy into the shared universe that they did because we weren't sure what And like, yes, you can go for a wild ride, 
But people don't have that kind of expendable budget to keep up with, like, six different comics. So, I mean, I think it's strange the way IDW treats the talent because I, 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 just, I just don't understand how you kind of sink your teeth into a series nowadays. Except the Hama one. I mean, the Hama one's an easy, easy one. Did, I mean, did you guys feel that at all? That kind of like when you're re- we're reading this as kind of the series is over, but I guess in real time you just don't know when it's going to end, and it gets so kind of ambiguous that I don't know. I don't know how you stick with that. Truge, I'm too far removed from the real time comic book release world, so I'm going to take this one out. I think out of the South African contingent of G.I. Joburg, only Rob is current on any any books out there. And yeah. I'm not speaking about Joe titles, just you follow something month to month, right, Rob? Several things. Yeah, no, definitely. But I mean, Have I think what Kuja's saying... Yeah, I, I, well, yeah. <laughs> couple of shelves. <laughs> I think what Kuja's saying is, is probably true. I mean, if you think about it in, in the time that it came out... Um, you can't be sure when this thing is going to end. And the crazy thing about every single issue, or you know, often within an issue, I noticed is that there's always it it always says the end. So almost any issue could have been the end. Um, yeah. Yes, yes, there's an overarching story that you kind of eventually start to see coming together. Um, but I mean, each issue can be very much taken and read on its own. I feel. So maybe that approach kind of helped it help people stick with it. But definitely, I mean, there's so many comic series coming out these days. If you if you don't know beforehand how far it's going to go, I think it is difficult for people to kind of jump on board with something so far out there. Uh, I, I can agree. Uh, I'm really just trying to make sense of how publishing houses are promoting books because IDW is talent heavy. Very much so. And like, look, I don't I don't necessarily in 2018, I'm turning enemies into allies. I don't know who uh, Aubrey Sitterson is. The dude is talented. But I think the way that the whole thing was framed, it, it clowned it. And, and in retrospect, you know, but I think Sholey, he's kind of an enigma. I, I think he's out uh, in Steel Country in, in Pittsburgh. And one thing I do, if we can transition to the uh, talent side, do you guys want to do that? I have one yeah, of the things yeah, I want to sure. say before we go there. Just, okay. Right. Yeah, go Some, something I just, because you guys are sort of touching on the pacing of the book as well in a lot of ways. And and I used to have a pull box. I had a pull box for about 12 years. And, and in that pull box was a lot of the Devil's Due G.I. Joe and then later on the introduction of IDW's G.I. Joe, of which... There are uh, issues that I have that are missing because they just didn't ship certain issues here when we ordered them. But I remember a book that I quite enjoyed, which was penned and um, penciled by Larry Harmer, or at least storyboarded by Larry Harmer, was the G.I. Joe Origin series, which I enjoyed because I I like the sort of the take that they were that they were going for with the how the G.I. Joe team started and whatever. But that book. I remember that book also had a bit of a studded release. And then going back even further than that, I'm a, I am was a big fan of Danger Girl and, and still am. Well, actually, I only enjoyed Danger Girl if it's um, J. Scott Campbell and Andy Hartnell. But when that Preach. book came out, the first three issues came out like monthly. It was like issue one, yeah, 
Issue two, yeah. Issue three, yeah. Issue four, uh, four months later. Issue five, uh, four to five months later. It basically took three years for that comic to come out, for that series to come out, and it's only seven episodes. 36 pages, a book, and about seven episodes, and that took forever. And that can kill the pacing in real time. And and, and it, it kind of did, because I sort of forgot I, I had a Danger Girl call order. So I sort of get where... Uh, Kujo is coming from with with regards to reading this in real time could have been very difficult but then something about the pacing of this book um, that is worth mentioning I read this book by um, suspicious means (laughs) Uh, meaning that I got to enjoy this book as basically a scanned copy and when I had pulled down all the pages and put them together in PDF format the first time some of the pages got muddled around uh, so you can imagine my first taste of the first, uh, well, should I say issue one, not issue zero, because issue zero came in complete. But issue one was kind of mixed with parts of issue three and issue four. And the way, or the way that book is written, the pacing is so crazy that it almost allows for these sort of 24-esque cuts, you know, quick cut moments that are intercut. So, you know, I could have... I mean, I don't even remember now, but I could have been reading some of the pages from the end of the story for all I know. And, and it somehow made sense. And I, and I think that's the magic of the pacing in these books, because there's a lot of moments in between moments. Kujo mentioned earlier with uh, snake guys's reveal or when Cobra commander got him. And then we cut to another section, we cut back and all of these events have happened. And you're sort of sitting there going, well, where are the pages that occurred here? You know? And, and in my situation, it was, further enforced because now I'm thinking, oh crap, did I mess up this PDF um, again? <laughs> you know, And that happened a few times in the book and it, and it actually got me thinking, no, I don't know if it's intentional or if those creators of that book are just somehow, I don't know, I, maybe they tapped into something or whatever, but they had so much confidence that people would actually turn the page back just to make sure what was going on that I actually reread a couple of the pages just to make sure that I that I was following through the pacing and that actually further enforced the page because there's so much happening that a reread of that page only gives you more and that's something like for me I think reading it real time it would have been like okay cool I've, I've got the next issue three months down the line and I would feel compelled to read the third, first issue again and be rewarded for it when I'm reading the second issue not everyone has your patience Paul and that's why I think this could be taken either way or as a pro or a con. Yeah. But yes, the pacing is frantic at times. It omits things at times. You know, you kind of have to read in events because mm. you kind of have been shunted along to a future time where, for instance, Rodimus shows up at Metroplex to confront the self-proclaimed Autobot King, Grimlock. <laughs> There's a bit of a shoving match. We don't know what happens between these two. How did they mm. figure out their differences how did they determine who's in fact top of the totem pole is it the guy that optimus appointed who then kind of became disillusioned and yeah. then stopped being the leader that he was destined to be or is it the the walking grimlock who's just kind of filled the void but he's not nuanced he's or sensitive yeah as a leader a peacetime leader for instance so the next thing you see grimlock is on the outside of metroplex and he's going to challenge megatron but who's in charge of the Autobots? Moments like that, you have to kind of read in what happened and decide for yourself. 
Contrast that with moments, and I believe this is a trope in comic book storytelling, and anyone who's done sequential art, maybe this is your maxim, but this is something that I got from the author commentary, that in comic books, the overarching theory is to use a panel to do one thing. Each panel must convey a driving action and only one unified action. Yeah. But they threw this theory out by doing three things in one panel, four things in one panel, a splash page that both drives the story, both geographically and chronologically. So you're moving through place and time within one splash page. So as your eye reads through it, a character that was descending the stairs in the top left-hand corner is now at the bottom of the stairs. (laughs) So I love that moved through space and time has elapsed. But it's within the borders of one gigantic panel. That's a convention that they like to mix in. If you want to talk creative line work, I mean, like, there was nothing more creative than Tunnel Rat literally crawling between frames. Thank you. I was waiting for that one. I I just got, I have to tip my hat on that one. I rejoiced. They got Tunnel Rat right in ways that no one else has. I mean, how do you work in a character whose specialty is crawling through dark spaces? Well, Tunnel Rat is the infiltration specialist. He's between the pets. A man alone and does things his way. You know, all the jobs that you okay, usually give Snake Eyes. Let's go there for a second. Use Tunnel Rat. Before we get into the, uh, the people involved, uh, did you have a favorite character? Did he give you something? Uh, yeah, let's just go with a favorite character from the book. Megatron. Megatron was compelling, man. Why, why Megatron? Huh. Because of lines like this, and this is a credit to Shirley's prose writing. I mean, we spoke about the art a lot, but the writing is equally good, (laughs) if not better. So this is after Grimlock confronts Megatron, and Megatron basically says, Grimlock is saying typical shit like, me Grimlock, me king, in his stunted dialect. Megatron snaps back with, Autobot king, you are a sad, miserable, deluded creature. Megatron's hand around your throat will be an act of rare kindness. That's not actually the line that I was driving towards, but I just wanted to set the scene by by saying that. And then they have a fight, which we don't actually see. But we do see the results of it, which has <laughs> Grimlock's Tyrannosaurus head attached to Megatron's right hand, and his yeah. tail attached to Megatron's fusion cannon. A- and Megatron confronts the onslaught of Autobots and G.I. Joes and the US-7 Animal Companion team. (laughs) I can't wait to get to that. (laughs) Yeah, it's brilliant. But anyways, he stands, Megatron alone, facing down his combined enemies. And he says, like a stud, I've toppled every strongman you've ever hidden behind. Your king is dead. Grimlock has found his true purpose. Spare parts for Megatron's war machine. Let this be a lesson to you. There is no Autobot nation. There never was an Autobot nation. Just a collection of dysfunctional toy soldiers. (laughs) Megatron's the best. And how meta is that line, actually? Because it's self-referencing in a lot of ways, which I really appreciate. And you also you also tap in on something there that this book has in an abundance, and and I'm sure we will get to it in pieces through this episode. But 
Easter eggs. The book is full of Easter eggs. There's lots Say of no little nods. Paul, we'll get there, man. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. You wanted my favorite character, cool. Megatron. That is my short answer. What's yours? I like your long answer. We should keep it. Rob, And what's my answer? Yeah. Oh, fuck. I'm, you know, our listeners are going to get confused about uh, who's who in this podcast, but uh, mine was Scoop, man. <laughs> I, <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's actually, it's like Scoop and it's those fucking animals. <laughs> I don't know why, but Scoop was like, where's Wally? Okay. Where's Waldo for you in the States? It was just so cool finding him in the panels for me. Like, I enjoyed his, like, the fact that he survived. Like, it was so cool when you get to, like, issue 10 or 11. You're like, ah, Scoop's, Scoop's still with us, you know? I was like, you know, it was cool that, like, some of the mainline characters are still with us. But, like, yeah, Scoop's still with us. But I think my favorite characters were those animals. Because it is the most ridiculous thing ever. And and I was like, but it's so smart. Like, I love Norgahide's ball. Clyde. <laughs> <laughs> Clyde, I love it, and that that destroys me. And and they also they go on their own little mission, and I'm like, you know, this is a comic book. This is cool. Somebody found something cool to do with animal companions, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and they serve to drive parts of the the plot as well. And and I really dug that for them because I actually got to a point in the book where I was like, well, everybody's fucking expendable. Like, everybody's going to die. That's, like, my feeling throughout the whole book was, like, this guy's going to die, that guy's going to die. It is really crazy. So, yeah, Paul's favorite characters were the animals and finding Scoop in the panels. <laughs> Robert? Gosh, yeah. No, there really are a lot of good characters. The way that he, he kind of took all these characters on. And he really elevated Scarlet a lot, I thought. I mean, you know, like, they're, they're two characters through the series who essentially get their own issue you know um issue nine is the destro's origin story or at least the origin story of of you know his clan and then issue seven titled i think headmasters is the is just scarlet overcoming the the brainwashing of dr mindelbender i think it was was his uh yeah. his mindelbender his, uh, <laughs> yes <laughs> um that was really Meets really cool end. i did not expect that oh wow that was, yeah, that was, yeah, cool. that, that, that was a bit harsh. Um, and she looks really and the awesome. The pros around that, like the last thought that you think echoes in eternity. Sleep tight, Dr. M. Huh. Jeez. Mm -hmm. Strapped into the brainwave scanner with a sword sticking out of his belly and blood just oozing. Oh. Brilliant. But yeah, I thought, I thought Scarlet was, was very well developed in this. Um, he kind of... It felt like her, but he kind of took her in his own direction as well. And yeah, she, she was pretty dope, I thought. Um, and the way that he incorporated her quite well into the story. But I also agree with Paul. The uh, US-7, the Animal Companion Squad, was, was pretty amazing. <laughs> I think seconded only by the October God. No, I've got to oppose you on that one. Fuck the October God so hard. They were so arbitrary. <laughs> I, I love like at the end of um, of the final issue where he's kind of laying out, you know, after everything is finished, um, like they've set up their own like little planet, New Transylvania or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow. I, I just I, I think where that comes from. I mean, I don't know, but it feels like Rocky Horror he, Picture Show. Rocky Horror Picture Show, but also like maybe he knew. <laughs> 
it feels like he knew nothing about the October God, and he just kind of like <laughs> made up. He was like, what the October God? I guess i got to have them in there somewhere. Okay, this is what they are. That was a piss take. I'm sorry. That was a big piss take. Because he just decided to make them a, a gag. But not a very universal gag because, well, I suppose your your vast majority of your target market is from the States. But everywhere else, you know, Halloween ain't such a big thing. So making the connection between the Soviet October Guard and an American holiday where you <laughs> celebrate horror mm, week. Yeah, on the 31st of October. It's week. Hashtag October Guard Gate. <laughs> it's it's a weak connection and made only worse by the fact that uh, Colonel Brekoff because he breaks off your fingers one by one <laughs> that's the text back um, uh, he he speaks in Greek characters <laughs> not acrylic. Yeah. yeah. so it's uh, it's silly Silly. Everything you're saying is not making me dislike these guys, and I'm not seeing your point, but keep saying it anyway. <laughs> okay, Paul. Well, as I say, they are pretty arbitrary. They're fan service, and look at me, I'm being clever by subverting it and making it into a horror squad, I guess, of cyborgs and monsters. I don't know what they are. They don't get any kind of explanation, and that's probably why I feel butthurt by it. They're just like, whoa! New adversary, new faction. What are they going to do in the storyline? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> I just love it when, like, uh, Rob mentioned it earlier. They're like, they're putting their flag down and they're like, you know, we, we call this in the name of, like, New Transylvania or whatever, like Rob mentioned. And you got Joe's in the foreground and they're like, oh, do you think we should take it back? And it's like, no, we'll come back and get it later. <laughs> no, aren't they like, why didn't we think of doing that? And yeah. I think it's wisecracking fellow Pittsburghian, Pittsburghian, is that correct? Um, Steeler, who's like, we can call it New Kennywood for all we care. It don't matter. <laughs> you can plant no, your flag all you want. And I like that because it, it further makes them such a side note. It's like, really, you know, it's an archaic practice. Just shut up. <laughs> you know, let's go and save the world. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of flags... Um, I think my favorite character, and you could make an argument for this being his book. I think it's got to be General Flag. That guy's a cut up every frame he's in, is he not? Mm. <gasps> Absolutely. And the big payoff or reveal at the end. So perfection. If you don't know what I'm referring to, it's the fact that it's Larry Harmer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I know exactly what Great. you're referring to. I just didn't want to be obvious. Yeah, well, I'm being obvious. <laughs> I I got no shame. He pulls off his hat and glasses, and it's it's a pretty decent likeness of Larry Harmer. Beautiful. I mean, it's Lawrence J. Flag. It's Lawrence, Larry. Come on. Yeah. That was a masterstroke. Well done. And and how that thing about Cybertron? They sort of have this like little uh, jab in there. It's like how the name of Cybertron comes from, and it's like. The four creators of Transformers, or the four Hasbro guys, so something like that. And Ron. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I like I don't know if that's true, and and perhaps I should have done some googling and whatever after reading the book, but I think I wanted to leave it so pure with its effect on me that I didn't want to go and 
you know, do the research and, and stuff like that afterwards. Um, but I was, I, I remember reading that and going, huh, wow. Like, I wonder if that's actually true, <laughs> you know? What, that they're responsible for all of this toy goodness that we still debate 35 years later? Yeah. I just, I wonder if the term Cybertron was created like that because a bit of Gundam trivia for you. Gundam is written by a man called Yoshitaka. I, I mean, uh, okay, never mind. Just don't worry about that. But the other guy um, that writes Gundam is called Hajime Yatate. And what's important to, to know there is that Hajime Yatate is not one person. It's a word made out of four or five different creators and they made that name up. So that name is essentially those four or five people that are part of that think tank. So I wonder if the word Cybertron was actually that involved when it came to, to making up the word. Because, I mean, if you think about it, Cybertron, it's, it's not necessarily the most difficult thing. But maybe these four creators had something to do with the with that naming. And maybe that's why it is. I, I'm, I'm diving in deep here. But the book does put a spotlight on it for a few seconds. And it, it, it is worth maybe researching. I like these deep waters. Because comedy is such a a prominence and awesome facet of these books, mm. what's, what was everyone's favorite comic moment? It could be a one-liner. It could be a big moment. Does everyone have one? Did you consider oh, I've got, I've got. a moment that got you laughing, chuckling? I got three. Two of them are really small, stupid things, and one of them I've already mentioned. Like, uh-oh, here comes Barney. <laughs> that killed me. I know it's completely juvenile, but but in that um, in its setting, it just I thought it was great. It's it's probably something I would say, which is kind of why I think why I enjoyed it so much. The pig, the Cl Clyde, like that was that that took me from left field. Like and even the description they have for it, and it's it's just very obvious that it's been kidnapped or whatever, or rescued or whatever. And then the third one was our Falcon's haircut. Falcon's <laughs> getting this haircut. He, you know, he gets inducted into the military program, into GI Joe or whatever, and he's got this crazy mullet, and he gets his haircut, and he's and it's a scene very much like um, a Full Metal Jacket. You know, everybody's getting their hair like shorn off and whatever. And he comes out of it, and there's um, Big Love, and Big Love's got like his typical afro and everything, and and all the Joes like with crazy hairstyles and art back and he's kind of sitting there <laughs> and he just got this look of like oh fuck <laughs> well that's that's brilliant because it segues so nicely with my notable comedy moment uh and this only became apparent on a reread but it didn't drop when i read it for the first time but do you know who's giving him the haircut uh-uh Cutter. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Cutter. Uh, I mean, maybe you thought he got his code name because it's in reference to a marine vessel called the Cutter, a fast sailing boat. Ah, uh -huh. guess again. It's because he cuts GI Joe hair. <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous. Oh man, that had me in stitches for a little while, and I congratulated myself for getting the joke. You know, I had to get it the second time around. And it's earned, hey? That, that's what I'm talking yeah, about. That's what I was talking about so earlier. So much of these Easter eggs. It's fan service. It rewards you for knowing things and seeing things that the eye would so easily gloss over that fact. 
Someone's getting a haircut by a guy. But... <laughs> Are you perhaps saying that there's more than meets the eye to this book? <laughs> <sighs> Cue that cricket. Knowing is half the battle. Oh, and it stopped. <laughs> oh, ah, but, but is it? There's another prose moment that blows my mind. Is there's a subversion of that? Yeah, deception or something. I draw your attention to Roadblock and Tunnel Rat escaping captivity. And Roadblock says, I can't let myself believe it. Not for one second. Not till I see it with my own eyes. Earth is just how I remember it. Can't do the job any other way. To which Tunnel Rat says, Denial is half the battle. Roadblock's <laughs> referring to the destruction of his home planet, Earth, and his mm. disbelief about that. And what a, what a crushing blow to take the old G.I. Joe slogan, knowing it's half the battle, and turning it on his head and being cynical about it, saying denial is half the battle. Plausible deniability. Deep cuts, as Kuja would say. Rob is one of our resident funny men. Uh, no pressure. Uh, did, what, what jumped out at you as a particularly comical uh, moment? Uh, there, there, there's too many. Um, there's just way too many. But I think one that um, Dave Decobal might, might might appreciate um, is also from the final issue where you kind of see some of the, you know, where characters end up. It's on the same page, actually, where you see that Baroness has is uh, pregnant <laughs> with the serpent Cobra Commander's child, who in the previous issue, I think it was, it was foretold by, Crystal what's Ball. his name again? Crystal Ball, in this like mm. wacky, completely out there, just one page, where he's just like, oh, I see the future, and it's a child. He has his, his father's eyes. That, that was quite a funny <laughs> moment. But um, okay, so, so one that Dave might like, um, also I thought was quite funny. Um, so Megatron is defeated, but then now they're describing where his body has landed up. Um, and there's a really cool panel. And then the, uh, the the words in the panel there are, Megatron's charred body is found, not by Unicron, but by Unicorn, in a dimension where magic is science and friendship is magic. And it's the My Little Ponies. And one of them is just kind of sauntered up to his dead body and is licking him. <laughs> that was... It's a step too far. <laughs> that, that was gold. It's just like what? hey, it was the last issue. He can do whatever he wanted. It it, yeah. it just completely yeah. I was just like okay. At this point, I'll believe anything. Mm. It's just it's ah oh, this this comic this comic series. You My guys God. are too good. You guys are too good. You set me up all the time. When you say <laughs> I'll believe anything. Let's talk about a quote from Tom Scholey. And I would love to interview Tom someday, maybe if we can both find the time. But uh, you should step into Joburg, Tom. You know it's the realist. But he you said, know we're big fans. <laughs> yeah. What, what, yeah. No, absolutely. Fan. I mean, we spend the whole episode now. But yeah, PJ? Fans of a guy named Joe. Um, no, I think uh, he said everything is an advertisement for something else. Uh, I'm just going to take a breath after that statement because that you guys hang words like genius. He's talking layers. So like when you look back at this book, you're kind of like, okay, transformation, the accepting of another culture, 
That's it. I like it. Uh, Robert, did you find any 33s in this book? Ooh, I was looking and I I, I can't say that I, I did. That's all right. What I did I miss? Um, well, there is a visual one. You guys mentioned the UN, and you know I could talk all day about the UN, but not today. The, the, the UN has a, a flat Earth map, uh, right front center, and uh, as you know, the flat Earth has 33 spots on it. So that's a, that's a nice. I see you, Tom. But it's also worth mentioning if you're a fan of the creators, Tom has. I mean, it, the dude basically he does his comics and he puts them online for free. And when I heard that, I was like, in this day and age, that's the move. In an age where information is everywhere, just put it out there. And if people like it, they'll, they'll buy it in print in retrospect, which that's brilliant. I'll, I'll give him that. But he did a uh, web series called Satan Soldier. That's not very surprising to find him in IDW's company. Mm-hmm. But interesting to note that uh, Satan's Soldier had 133 pages. I'm, I'm going to say 5 out of 10 on that one, Tom. But, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I, I love this. I would recommend it to even Merc in the frosty uh, Northern Lights. Uh, give it a run. You may tune out the uh, Autobots and whatnot. I kind of did down the stretch because I just don't have enough culture in me to take them on, but but it's a. I think they they just dropped the quintessential version or something like that. I think it's like everything in one book. That's what I that's what I dropped for. And I did think that I love it when you get insider stuff in comic books. Like I think in these books, Shaoli and uh, Barber did like a commentary, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah, at the back of every issue. Stephen, what did you think about how that information was conveyed? Look, if there was any doubt that those guys were pretty thoughtful about the process and pretty well-reasoned, it gave me insight into exactly how much toing and froing they have before producing the, the ultimate product. That was hugely insightful. You know, nothing happens by chance. It's not like seat of your pants kind of writing. It doesn't seem to me to have the same process that Harmer followed. Like, I don't know what's going to happen on page 23 until I've gotten to page 22. I did feel like there was a blueprint, a plan, a mission statement. Every issue seemed to tackle a different genre, for instance, and there was some faithfulness to that. The one issue was part of a 24-hour comic book competition. That sort of shit. It's interesting to see how it goes from collaboration and throwing ideas up on the wall to the finished product. If you kind of do kind of like a a run through of of Tom's media, whether it's like a YouTube interview or some kind of interview in print, the guy is he's continually asking the question of like, how do I promote this and get this in front of people? I'm definitely taking cues. So I I appreciate uh, what I've learned with this book. I did think that having encountered a lot of creative teams, if I was going to do commentary on a comic, I would uh, do it in podcast form. Uh, that, that brings life to it. Uh, after like reading the fiction in print, like the commentary on the fiction in print was almost like too wooden to me. I was just kind of like, eh, all right. But that, that's one thing that I w- I'll probably change up in, in that model. 
it did enrich my reread. I read it once to just like pop the cherry on the series and absolutely crush it. I couldn't put it down. And then over the course of a few days, I read the commentaries. Then I reread it in detail, pouring over the little Easter eggs and also with the added insight of the, the rather wooden commentary, yes. But it was nice to hear them expressing themselves in their words, in their banter, and not through their work to give you that insights. So in that case, the sterility, the woodenness, it helps because these are real creatives and they're speaking very candidly and very intellectually instead of just like showing you all the flash. Hi, I'm John Barber. Here's an anecdote. But guys, gee whiz, we could talk about this a lot. And this was a very ambitious podcast to do because a 14-part comic book series, we could literally release 14 episodes to try and treat this in the depth that we could. As G.I. Joe fans and Transformers fans, there are cool little Easter eggs I saw on that side of the fence as well. I mean, this book finally made sense of Astro Train. Amazing. Yeah. You know, he's got all these train cars attached to him, like a big snaking tail. Wow. Rad. Also, it made sense of Optimus Prime's three components. All three of which are Optimus Prime. Combat deck, roller, and the brain center, brain box, I don't know. His, his red robot form. The trailer is part of Optimus Prime. Awesome. Omega Supreme. The city bots. Just uh, scaling the compositional elements to have tiny G.I. Joes and their vehicles, then Transformers, then a city-sized bot, then a planet-sized bot, all within one frame. Absolutely spectacular. Yeah, that was it was that was insane. <laughs> I forgave the scaling faux pas almost immediately because just the sheer bombastic balls to attempt some of these things in terms of proportions. I don't care if it looks like Devastator's the same size as Trypticon. It's fine. It's okay. I don't care if Starscream is Picking up the U.S.'s flag and tossing Sky Strikers off the deck. Whereas he should be the size of one of those Sky Strikers. I don't care about that. Because there's so much happening. As I said earlier, the plot is progressing through time and through motion. All in one big splash. And it's action-packed. And it's it makes me want to play with my toys. I had one very cool nostalgia moment when Mega Megatron is formed. And he uses the power of the Dark Matrix, or the Matrix married with his black hole heart, to pull all of the Autobot cars towards him, forming this ultimate gestalt of haphazardly arranging Autobot cars and sticking them to his robot form. I used to do that with my micro-machines. Just have a, <laughs> a putty skeletal structure and stick micro-machine cars to the putty to create a gestalt. <laughs> I used to do that. That's actually quite that that's quite industrious of you. So I have a huge rap sheet of things that I liked about this series. Loved about the series. I've got a significantly shorter rap sheet about things that I maybe didn't like about the series. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Guys, 
let's do our closing remarks and close this chapter. I just want to give two two things uh, quickly because I don't know if I said this uh, in our pregame or in the actual episode, but that commentary and and sorry, Kujo, I know that you addressed the question to um, Stephen, but that commentary is something that uh, that younger me would would immediately have like devoured. Um, younger me being the Paul that was still learning how to draw comic books and draw stuff when I was a teenager, when I was like 16, 17, 18, when I had also spent all that time to, to focus on my drawing. So getting that kind of insight was, was awesome. But uh, the only other book that I know of, or the only, only other creator I know of that has actually done a commentary like that has been Masamune Shiro um, or Shiro Masamune who um, did uh, the Ghost in the Shell series as well as Appleseed. And if you guys get the opportunity, you know, if our listeners, I don't know if that was a fart or not, but okay. If our listeners get the opportunity to Mega read any of those graphic novels, they've got a whole, they've all got sections at the back um, that Dark Horse has done. And it's actually got Shiro explaining um, a lot of his process for his pages, which was fascinating to to me um, as somebody who was learning to create stuff. In this instance, I omitted uh, reading them. Like I admitted them from the from my reading process entirely, and that is because I didn't want I didn't want their uh, creative process because I'm a creative person and because I do that as a professional thing. It's very easy to be influenced by other smart people, smart and creative people, because. It's just, it's really cool to be around them to get that kind of info. Then I'm scared that it would almost over-intellectualize the process of reading the graphic novel. Does that make sense? And sure. so I want to kind of go in it with like my seven-year-old mentality and, and have fun with it and not over-intellectualize the process, which I'm now having fun doing as we deconstruct this book and deconstruct why we love the shit out of it. But yeah, and, and I'm just going to go straight into my closing remark. In closing, I think this is a, a, a G.I. Joe and a Transformers book and a comic that anybody who who is perhaps, you know, getting to your 30s, is in your 30s, maybe hitting your 40s, that has gro- grown up with the Kirby era of comic books or has grown up with the uh, archetypical Kirby-style comic art around you in your youth and in your nostalgia. And those of us who have grown up with the amazing box art that came with Transformers toys and their promotional uh, material with uh, Transformers just fighting all over space, every single thing they could do and, and having frames of their transformations and everything in one page. I think if, if that switches your lights on, then I think uh, this book is definitely for you. And uh, for those of us who like to read a little bit deeper there are one or two moments and one little theory that I'd like to just drop off uh, before I go is I like that, at least for me and my interpretation of it was, I like that although they do resolve this in the book, the possibility that this is all just the crazy fever dream or perhaps the crazy imagination of one young Shana O'Hara that kind of sticks in my head as well as a possibility of what this book is that it could just be her imagination and her as a young child imagining a future where she is uh, you know quite important to it and that that's that's where i want to leave that i don't want to leave that have too much of a discussion there about it i just i just want to throw that theory out 
And if any of you listeners pick up on that or after hearing this, it sparks a thought and you want to dig into the conspiracy of it, by all means, I think this book welcomes it. An interesting thing I found, I think I read this twice, but the first time I managed to read the first three issues. And I noticed Shirley often does this where a lot of the panels, or not a lot of them, a couple of them are kind of covered up. So you can't even actually read what's being said. And what I ended up doing that first time when I read through it is I actually stopped reading it. <laughs> and I just I just basically read it by looking through the art. And I found that I could still understand what was going on through those those final 10 issues just by looking at the art and occasionally reading a panel. And I think that, that that's pretty incredible that I could still follow essentially what was going on just by looking at, at the art. And that only the second time I read it did I actually properly, you know, like, okay, let's read every single panel and see what's going on. I think that's incredible. I mean, you could give this, although you shouldn't give this to a kid to read. <laughs> but even someone who can't read, I think, could, could get a ton out of this. And I think we said a lot of good stuff about this. The one, probably the only negative I think I have about this this entire thing is that sometimes on the bigger pages... I found it difficult to follow where I was supposed to read, which uh, speech bubble I was supposed to read next. Like, there was just such these big double pages, and there were just lots of speech bubbles, and I was like, okay, do I go across and then go down? Do I, you know, kind of like dip down on this side and go back up on the other side? And I think that's the only negative I, I kind of had with this whole thing. And the strange thing is that you'd think the one guy, at least from the South African contingent, who does not, you know, glowingly speak about the Diageo movie and all its insane sci-fi elements um, would enjoy this. And that really is down to the art and the way that the story is told. Um, like, this is very much, like, in a way, a continuation of the film or kind of, like, incorporating a lot of the Diageo animated film elements, like Cobra and, uh, you know, just crazy off-the-wall stuff. Yes, Um but it, it, it somehow works, and I really absolutely adore it. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry for all the you know the people who thought I'd hate this. I really like it. In the- <laughs> <laughs> it's it's weird. I don't understand. I don't understand why. I mean, I'm not saying that like I can I can see why I would hate it, but I I don't understand why I like it as much as I do. Maybe it is just because it's so it doesn't care about being. Uh, you know, bombastic, but I think still there is another layer to it. You can definitely see, you know, something deeper. I think, you know, Stephen has alluded to with the commentaries, you know, they were thinking about this, they knew where they were going. Yeah, and I think, as once again, Stephen said, we could spend, you know, a year making episodes just on this. Not to give Stephen ideas. (laughs) There's so much stuff! (laughs) I mean, did anyone tally up the tech specs and file cards? No. And there's so many characters that are uncredited. I mean, mm. just on the Transformers front, like Ape Face is in there. Octane, I saw him. I saw the tank guy from Armada that has gun barrels for fingers. And that's not even counting like vehicle and equipment cameos, like the Weather Dominator. <laughs> of course the Joes have a Weather Dominator. They're terraforming Cybertron. Mm. And the Terradromes are Terradromes. Did you check that subtle little word change? Mm. Or let it change. Version 2 bats are in there. The radar rat is represented. 
Oh, God, I, I, lost. I lost my mind. That's the fucking radar rat. <laughs> Kujo, do you have a closing remark? I agree with you guys. I could keep going on this. But let me pull some old school in. I would have loved to have sunk more time into this, this comic, which probably is my endorsement of it. I have like six interviews, which I could not have foreseen uh, over a couple months uh, previous to this in the next two weeks. So one of those people happens to be uh, Michael Golden. Um, for, for Joe fans that don't appreciate Transformers, this is the five minutes of the uh, episode that you can enjoy. But <laughs> as you know, Michael Golden is, uh, since I've looked into him, he uh, wrote or he drew the first 12 issues of the comic The Nom, um, a comic which Larry Hama was an editor on and that was kind of like that book hit people so hard that uh, Vietnam vets couldn't even uh they couldn't believe he wasn't in the war himself the way his line art captured the complexities of uh of that war but anyway he also drew probably one of the most stylized versions of GI Joe you're going to see and that's mm. even with uh the people like Sholey in the company totally different books but if you're talking style, so I figured, uh, oh, I, I want to say this before I forget. Tomorrow Man, a.k.a. The Blind Master, if you're out there, uh, Golden also drew one of the original uh, Star Wars Marvel run. So, you know, I'm going to be in my ear or his ear about that. But, uh, yeah, I figured we could just kind of drop a couple thoughts on G.I. Joe yearbook uh, that Michael Golden drew kind of as a, uh, a nice little send off. And if you guys just want to mention a panel that jumped out at you, one that, like, Golden captured G.I. Joe like nobody else, uh, we can do that. You know, we could drop the truth, as we always do, or I could hang a synthwave stinger. I choose B. Crack open G.I. Joe yearbook, too. You got Michael Golden on the interiors and the exteriors. Considered radical in its day, I mean, nobody saw his tank hug a corner until Golden did it. Robert, bring some clarity. Well, what I'm looking at is a couple of vehicles driven by the October God, and these characters are just so well realized, and the, the motion in these, these vehicles, and they're drinking vodka up in here. And chilling. Dan is chilling. On page 10, the bottom panel titled later well not really titled later i suppose you could say it's it's the later panel go ahead paul and then i've got michael golden's extremely dynamic artwork uh with uh his insane perspective and angles uh bringing us a very tense moment between the october god and cobra as the october god tries to mount some flatbed trailer and cobra comes out of nowhere guns blazing and two exquisitely well-drawn rattlers on the bottom right of page 12 i'm also gonna go with rattlers this time bottom right panel on page 14 there is no onomatopoeia on that panel but Dan is taking a shot with her sniper rifle in the preceding panel and the shot is ricocheting off the angled front armor plate glass on the Rattler. Power nerd, 
do it. You can almost imagine the sound effect. That bullet cracking against the window pane and spinning off past it. It's very kinetic. It's something you don't see often enough. And the Cobra pilot looks like he's wearing an Ali Viper helmet. Albeit a proto Ali Viper helmet. And of course, you gotta end on the final page where you got G.I. Joe letting everybody do the heavy lifting as they sail off and basically seagulls laugh at our enemies <laughs> <laughs> you got you got gi joberg in 2018 because sometimes the hard-headed gotta feel it to believe it H how are we going to recover after that track gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> i don't know we... with a shameless plug of course <laughs> here's a little update on our joe fund me campaign we are nearing a milestone of $3,000. And this is significant because this means that we have sufficient money in the kitty for three airfares. Other costs aside, if we can get three airfares, we can come to Jokon. So I guess this is my one and only plug for the episode that if you are maybe considering throwing us some bones it is a very good time to do so <laughs> and also with uh with uh with that comes some other cool news uh gi joburg has finally got itself an instagram account so you can find us on instagram by simply typing gi joburg in your search on instagram or if you prefer at G.I. Joburg, and you'll find us, and you'll know it's the right one because we have our uh, Cobra Viper and our profile pic, and uh, yeah, I endeavor to make the Instagram crazy. I would like uh, the Instagram to sort of show the, the more nuts side of G.I. Joburg. Uh, no, I'm kidding, folks. It really is a platform <laughs> for us to have fun, and you know, we often take a lot of stills of our toys, um, as, as you guys well know. And uh, sometimes they don't have a great place to live. And Instagram is the best place for artworks and images and photography to live. So that's where we're going to put it up. So if you want to see some cool toy photography from G.I. Joburg, it's toynography. Yeah, that's also <laughs> Didn't catch for those of you for those of you that are not paying attention. That's toy pornography. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a lot of cool behind the scenes antics that we would love to share on Instagram. Yeah, come check it out. Obviously, if you're a toy channel or you are very interested in what we do uh, we, and uh, we've seen your name around, of course, we're going to come and follow you. We've already got a, quite a few uh, cool followers already, so come join them and see what we're cooking. Yeah, that's enough uh, Instagram plugging. And that was episode 109 of G.I. Joburg. 
Thanks for taking a ride with us. I'm Cybertronian Steve. This is Tolola One Paul. And his cricket. And <laughs> my fucking cricket. Yeah, you've been ridden by Rob. Whoa. <laughs> Hot Robimus. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at 86Cujo. That's all I got. Lady J, every one of us, whether a general or a grunt, is a Joe. And G.I. Joe has always been a suicide mission. We die so freedom can live. <laughs> Peace out, Middle East out. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>